Dr. James Beckett Sports Card Insights here with Adam Gray. Adam is the basketball card fanatic and uh, has put out a couple of outstanding e-magazines or 30-page publications. First one's free. The second costs 10 bucks. Not expensive at all. But first, thanks to sponsors. Panini, the current basketball licensee, Tops and Upper Deck, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Hugging the Scott Auctions, ComC.com and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Adam, welcome to the show. You're truly a fanatic and your publications that I really enjoyed proved that out. Not only that, you, as I did when I did the magazines, you had great contributors that you helped put together into two 30-page masterpieces. So first one's free, second one's 10 bucks. Adam will tell you how to get it. Uh, but it's a digital product. So welcome to the show. You've been here before. Jim, thank you for having me back. I'm grateful for the opportunity. The problem with distributing something like this, as I see it, there's a lot of problems, but one of them is being able to reach audiences. And so really the lifeblood of me being able to connect with people that I want to can't just be social media, although it largely is. I'm comparing and contrasting. We're a generation apart. When I started the basketball magazine, the logistical challenges were mighty. We had lots of subscribers in Australia, tens of thousands or readers. They weren't all subscribing. A lot of them got them from the dealer copies. But uh, so you've bypassed that. You have a kind of an e-magazine format. You can distribute it digitally. And so as you can, and that has a better chance to go viral. And it sounds like you're doing better. My only concern for you, Adam, is it's just people, until they see something, they can't necessarily comprehend that this could really be worth a lot more than 10 bucks. Yeah, you're asking a question that I'm really struggling with too, which is how do you let everybody know about it? And here I am, a guy with, I think it's like 4,400 followers on Instagram. And I have a podcast that gets listened to you know, a thousand or so times a week. And that's basically the extent of my reach. Your point about subscribers in Australia and in other places around the world is exactly right. There, there is some benefit to this distribution model because I'm able to easily turn, turn as soon as the magazine's done, I don't need to wor worry about anything being printed or anything like that. It can just be emailed to somebody. So it's more real time. We get it to people really quickly, but how do we let people know about it? People walk into card shops every day who would love to read the magazine, but they don't know about it. They're not on Instagram necessarily. And then when we do distribute it, how do we make sure that people don't just forward it to their friends? It says that it's proprietary and confidential. And I believe for the most part that people are good and they do what they're supposed to, but that's not assured. Anyone could just send it around to anybody else. And so um, that's why we offered the first one for free to let people know the quality that, that the magazine contains, um, the passion. That's what the whole, that's why it's called Basketball Card Fanatic. It's for people who are passionate about collecting basketball cards. The tagline is we want the magazine to be something that makes you a smarter um, happier, more long-term perspective-oriented collector of basketball cards. And I, th I think we're doing that, but you're right. There are some real challenges with making sure that, that the people who want that content will actually receive it. We had, uh, again, just in the, re in the world of uh, print and paper, we had people ripping us off. It, it, I don't think it was a large number, but what I explained to my team is that the number of people potentially ripping us off and, and uh, trying to get copies for free what was proportional to the increase in the price. They said, why don't you increase the price? And I said, well, the higher the price goes, the more they think about trying to get it for free. Right. Obviously, if you go the other direction, the lower the price, then the less likely people are to pirate it. What people would say to me, and I know you're in that same boat, is that, hey, this is a labor of love. Okay. Right. They put the emphasis on love, not the emphasis on labor. It's still labor. It's a lot of work uh, in editing because... 
as you're editing, you want your guest authors or interviewees to, to look and sound good. And you did. And that just doesn't happen without some editing. So I, I fully understand that. So there's a lot of work in there, a lot more than, than what people think. But if you can get, like I said, I just think if you can get more advertising or sponsors that can drive down the price, then people, nobody's really done magazines very well digitally. And I think I can't be the only one that's thinking, I really want Adam to keep doing this. And that's going to, your most loyal fans are going to need to promote. You hit your one degree of separation are your podcast listeners and your Instagram followers. That second degree of separation gets them to say, hey, my circle needs to know about this. And then you're off. I'm going to say something really obvious. Your ability to understand what I'm trying to do and, and some of the complexities is it's clearly valuable because you've actually done the thing that I'm trying, that I would like to do at least to some degree. I don't have any dreams about being the next Beckett magazine, but I do have dreams about it being significantly larger than it currently is. You did a terrific job. It's just, well, we, we had, but what I'm thinking here, and again, you've got two components. You've got an analytical component. That's the pricing stuff, the, some of the analytics that you have, and then you have some more narrative stuff, not unlike what we had in our basketball magazine, where we had a, a price guide section in the middle wrapped around some editorial. And so don't make me say that people just bought for the price guide or just bought for the editorial, I think they bought it for both. And you're trying to straddle that too. There's some value just in the analytics, but then your interview was worth the whole price right there as well. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that. I Here's how I feel about it. For right or for wrong, there are people who are really into hobby content for the valuation. Hobby content that is designed around pricing and how to make money and really the financial aspects. What's interesting about me is, as we talked about on previous episodes, like I'm, I'm definitely a finance guy, right? I'm a CPA. I'm a statistics sort of guy. I love stats. I've always loved stats. I work at a private equity firm, right? I'm a controller. I'm definitely like investing is my career, but I don't, that's not the part of the hobby that I love. Yeah. Like I want out of every issue, I want people to feel like, wow, that was passion. That was why people collect. And I know some people just collect for financial purposes, but I think there's enough of that out there. And I don't want to necessarily add to that as much as I want people to read it and go, oh, you know what? That's really cool. That inspires me to be a better, happier, more long-term perspective collector. And But you got to straddle it, I think. you got to have something for both. That's right. That's what I felt as well. And the other thing that I just, because I'm vicariously thinking through this with you, is that when people don't know this. I maybe mentioned it in one of the early episodes. that I didn't make any money for two years. I was I that, but not the basketball. The basketball actually was an instant success because of all the all-nighters that were pulled in order to get that platform, which was baseball and then football and then basketball came on. But baseball, when it was just baseball, I did not break even for two years. What aspects of your basketball magazine do you think were the things that people really found the most interesting? I think it's the price guide and the other things that have to do with that. It wasn't, but like I said, I'm trying to straddle it. If it's just a price guide, that's, it's, that's good. But we had some really good articles, the reader's rights, the hot list, the set reviews, things like that. So just like you, we're, we were trying to make it useful and make it timely. And the monthly frequency made a lot of sense. There were people telling me, you're nuts. You shouldn't do just a basketball magazine. Lump it in with football, just like they said, lump football in with baseball. And they said, you're, and you're also stupid because you're doing monthly. You should do quarterly. We don't need monthly. 
I said, well, you might be surprised. So I went against the grain. And so you have to be willing as a publisher, as an editor, as an, an author, you've got to be willing to go against the grain. I'm a, st- a stats guy as well, but there wasn't any data to say, this is how you make that decision. It was a gut feel. I said, this thing's going to work and we're, and we're going to stay the course. And that doesn't mean you're not going to do some tweaking, but you've got something, you've got a cool name for it. And I think you have a following and it's a loyal following. It just needs to get that second degree of separation where your loyal fans tell their loyal friends and, and they grab onto it But because there's value there. Yeah. There, the, I, I I appreciate that. I I hope that we can create that. Uh, that hope yeah. you are creating it. It's and you have uh, more visibility than I have in, in your social media for sure. But if you tell your readers whatever, is it you're depending on them, just as I was uh, th- thirty years ago. Can I dig into the initial feature of your e magazine? Is your market your modern index, and you have these indexes that you have, which yeah. I think is is really good. I like the way you've broken it down into three different periods. I, I would add that the feedback so far, I don't know if people are just trying to be nice to me, but I don't think so. I think it's really good. And I think that the, the feedback so far has been basically 100% very positive. People will get done where we've only issued two issues so far. People will finish the first and then they will immediately email and say, can I have the second? Here's the $10. Because people want, there's a real hunger for, for this content. I know I'm right on that. I have no question. Uh, you, you are right. You could get in the same problem we had 30 years ago, 35 years ago even. When somebody gets your e-magazine and it's really good and it's really helpful, there's a certain personality that says, it's Lord of the Rings. It's my precious. I'm not going to share it with somebody because <laughs> that magazine gives me an edge. Why do I want all my people I'm going to be trading with or collecting with to know what I now know that Adam has distilled for me through this content? I'm going to spend 10 bucks and I don't want other people to get it because I want to, just like our magazine, when it first came out, they didn't want other people to get it because they wanted to know, they wanted to have an edge on their competitors. Why did you break at 93 instead of at 89 or 90 in terms of the older cards? There's not, wouldn't call that vintage. The David Congrats. Robinson rookie card is not, so that's vintage. But anything in the 80s, I think, is quite a bit tougher on base cards anyway, than when you get to the 90s where you have all these different licensees. So that was one thought I had why that you might break it at 89, go 48 to 89. Yeah. So whenever you create a list, you have hard questions to answer. I wanted to create three indices that represented different periods of time for the history of the hobby. And so I did struggle with exactly what you're talking about. Um, Your three choices are, those are three buckets. I totally affirm that. I'm just quibbling on the first breakdown of what is vintage. The reason in particular for that one has to do with two things, Shaquille O'Neal and chromium type cards. Did I feel like Shaquille belonged more with the older class or with sort of the Kobe in 96 and then LeBron in 2003? In the end, I said, I think he belongs. It was before Chromium cards. I think he's closer to the 80s than he is, in my mind, to the refractor stage. And the next year, 1993 is the year that refractors and and finest. Okay. We disagree, but I'm not going to get into that because I think I did. I have an episode coming up just about Shaq and Shaq with the classic, classic game cards was a game changer. And so that was a new thing. The second thing was in your percentages as an analyst, there are so fantastical. I just think it's important for you to make sure you're putting historical reference because people are going to want to know what's going to happen now if something's up 400% for the year, but is down 20% in the last 30 days. 
but I love the way you had truth in packaging, but I would just encourage you because I think people could say, I want to get next issue because I want to see what's going on there. But yeah. my, my feeling is it's if you're always presenting, not just a year to date, but for sure, at least start 1-1-2020 at the beginning of the year. And even if you could go back a few years, if you look at the first index, which is modern, yeah. you will notice that it doesn't have any historical information. And the reason for that is that modern is there are cards within the index that you can't go back that far. There's some cards that are from the current year. But if you go to the other two indices, specifically the pre-modern and the vintage, you'll notice that I've broken down not only since the prior issue percentages and year to date, but also 2010 to date. Those numbers, to your point though, are fantastic. And they're fantastic because funny things, especially in the short term, happen when you're talking about IRR and, and, and gain percentages. So for example, the vintage index year to date is up 364% um, on the, for IRR. That's an incredible number. It's just an insane number. It's also right. And it's based on what we could see items were selling for, you know, at the beginning of the year, that number is actually right. And then the fun thing about the, because most people who are listening have gotten, it compares that to the S&P. And what's great is whatever, you know, metric you look at, at least if you go to year to date, the markets, each of these three in, indices really just blow away the, the financial markets. It won't always be that way, but it is right now. But it actually always will be that way if you create the market basket in retro. Oh, that's good. Good call. Yeah. But it, I'm going to plant a seed here for you. Okay. And, and maybe some other listeners would want to submit to you. I, I know I could do it if I want to take the time to create a market basket of 50 cards that did worse than the S&P. <laughs> find me 50 basketball cards that didn't outpace. Now, maybe they didn't do triple digit outpacing IRR, but I'm wondering. How could you even choose badly from yeah. 10 years ago? Is there anything? I, mean, I guess you could take a, even a common player that was a PMG green. So that's my point is that you've cherry picked and, and that's legit. That's what people do. But it's so fantastical. Yeah. I think you could take an idiot or a blind collector and say, I'm just going to buy 50 cards in 2010 and see what happened to them in 2020 probably did pretty well if they bought stuff that was not necessarily base cards and things like that, which are not really trackable that much. So anyway, that's just a thought. The idiots market basket of 50 basketball cards that I think still outpaced. outpaced. For example, 93 finest refractors. Is there any player, any card in that set that you didn't hit the jackpot over the last 27 years or whatever years? Yeah. My best example to illustrate exactly what you're saying is that in 2013, Derek Rose was on top of the world, he just won the MVP award. And his gold prism from 2012 is worth significantly more today after all of the injuries, all the bad things that have happened than it was seven years ago. Not, not that you need to make that a big feature, but it, when the numbers are so fantastical, they think, yeah, you pick the cards. Anybody picking any cards, blindly picking right. cards. And so I think that would be an interesting article. So I want to apologize to you, Adam, for making work for you. You don't have to do it, but I hope you continue. 